Funding for THINK comes from SMU Master and Doctor of Liberal Studies programs. You're listening to THINK on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. Spending your teen years in Saudi Arabia might have a strong impact on how you felt about yourself and your worth as a woman. Until this year, females were not permitted to vote in any election, and they are still not allowed to drive or go out in public unless accompanied by a male guardian. For my guest, who was born in Egypt, moved to the U.K. at 7 and then to Saudi Arabia at 15, the experience of sudden and overwhelming repression made her feel first like the walking embodiment of sin, and then it made her angry. Ultimately, it made her a feminist. Mona Altahawi is a staunch advocate for women's rights throughout the world, but particularly in the Middle East, where various countries still allow child marriage and wife beating, forbid women to initiate divorce, and permit female genital mutilation as a strategy for preserving women's purity until their husbands take their virginity. Her new book is called Headscarves and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution. She's in town to speak tonight to the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Mona, welcome to Think. Hi, thank you for having me. You write, there's no sugarcoating it. We Arab women live in a culture that is fundamentally hostile to us, enforced by men's contempt. What is the source of that contempt? Well, the way that I see what's been happening in the Middle East and like to explain it kind of graphically is there's a trifecta of misogyny. We saw women and men go out on the streets together to fight against one point of that trifecta, which is the state, because we recognize the state oppresses everyone. And so you saw uh, women and men in Egypt, Tunisia, all those other countries going out to fight against that state oppression. But for women, it's the state, the street, and the home. And those three points of of the triangle, the the trifecta of misogyny, as I call it, um, they oppress women in unison. So whether it's um, state laws or whether it's street sexual harassment or whether it's home home violence of of various forms or or violence, domestic violence, marital rape, etc., All those three points of the triangle together understand each other and recognize that they can control women because they can. I didn't know until reading this book that a number of women arrested in Tahrir Square were subjected to something called a virginity test. What is that? It's essentially sexual assault. I mean, it's sexual violence, but it's called a virginity test. And it's it's something that is recognized in several countries in the region. Turkey also has it in some of the more um, rural areas. And in Egypt, it came to light because on March 9th, when the military junta that took over after Mubarak was forced to step down, um, the military junta decided to clear Tahrir Square. And so they took in all the activists and um, detained them for a while in the Egyptian Museum, which was just horrific to think of. And then they took them to a military jail. They separated the women who said they were married from the women who said they were unmarried. And the women who said they were unmarried, the assumption there was, or the unspoken there was, they were virgins, had not had sex. And the way that the military described it or defended the indefensible, basically, was they didn't want these women to then accuse the military of raping them after they were released, as if only a virgin can be raped. And this is actually a very important point, because I mentioned in my book that in several countries in the region, the punishment for rape differs whether you you raped a virgin or a married woman, which is something, obviously, that I want to end. Hmm. So these women, uh, there are at least 17 women that um, groups like Human Rights Watch have documented uh, accusing the military of sexually assaulting them in this way. And it's basically, uh, quote-unquote, a test by which a medical doctor looks for a hymen, which, again, I emphasize is a form of sexual violence. And several of the women very bravely spoke out at a time when the country was very pro-military because the military presented itself as protecting Egypt and the revolution. 
and these women were vilified. And one of the women tried to sue the military but lost her case and then took it to the uh, the, uh, the court of the African Union. But I mentioned their case in my book because I think, if anything, that really inspired me to write this book because when I heard what happened to these women, our revolutionary heroes, I thought, you know, we're going to have another revolution for sure. There is no way that we're going to be quiet. But what we ended up seeing, shamefully, was more violence, more anger, rather, directed at these women who exposed this crime than against the people from the military who committed this crime. Help me understand the way men and women in these cultures, and we'll actually, let me step back for a minute. You say that you're speaking specifically about Islamist cultures. Give us your definition of that word and how um, you've seen it applied in different places. No, I actually speak about um, it, political Islamists who are people who believe in the combination of politics and religion, like the Muslim Brotherhood or more right-wing groups like the Salafi groups or the Saudi royal family and its adherence to what is called Wahhabi Islam, and even kind of very very, very conservative Shia groups too. So I don't distinguish between Sunni or Muslim. But I'm not just focusing on Islamists. I'm focusing on the region, the Arabic-speaking part, uh, parts of the Middle East and North Africa, and even regimes such as ours in Egypt and, and Tunisia and others that portray themselves as secular. I also you know, hold them accountable because, again, I, I refer to that trifecta, the state, the street, and the home. And I think it's a really important trifecta to remember when answering your question about why would parents parents treat a daughter like this and especially why would mothers uh, pass on this misogyny because I'm often asked you know it's mothers who bring up their sons like this and it's mothers who subject their daughters for example to female genital mutilation how do you explain that and I explain that by saying that you know Women are not stupid. Women know what they need to say and do to survive. And so they, they recognize what they need to do to present their daughters as future brides. And the way that I explain what, or connect it kind of globally is my book focuses on the Arabic-speaking parts of the Middle East and North Africa, but I also speak about global feminism and the fact that misogyny lies on a spectrum. So whichever country I go to and speak at, I remind people of what happens there that lies on that global or, or that spectrum of misogyny. And here in the US, for example, I remind people of what the Christian right wing has done when it comes to women's reproductive rights. And when you see young women sign their, their virginity to their fathers in purity balls and, and through so-called purity pledges. So, you, you know, again, here you have in the United States in 2015, a culture by which girls sign their virginity to their fathers, not even their mothers, but to their fathers until a man takes that virginity, which is their husband. And it's important to see this spectrum because the last thing I want people to do when they read my book is say, oh my God, it's awful over there. And thank God everything is great here. Obviously, it's a matter of degrees. It's not, I'm not saying that, I'm not creating a moral equivalency, but I am saying that feminism needs to continue and hasn't finished its job anywhere. Okay, so help us understand this. It, it comes across as a fear of all sexuality. And, and we understand there, there are some dangers to consensual sex. You know, people can get pregnant when they don't want to. People can get diseases. But this feels like so much more than that. I th you know, I think ultimately, um, and I call it modesty culture, which is the, the kind of the culture that I, I refer to often in my book, by which women's bodies are controlled through various ways, usually through veils of various kinds. And that modesty culture, again, I, I, I connect to a more global idea of the need by religions, most religions actually, but if I look at my part of the world, I look at Judaism, Christianity and Islam. And, you know, I spent some time in Jerusalem as a Reuters correspondent and I would see my ultra-Orthodox Jewish neighbors in West Jerusalem dressed very similarly to Muslim women, you know, where, but, but they wear wigs rather than headscarves. 
And, you know, they practice also a kind of a quote unquote very modest way of living. And again, I go back, I refer to purity culture here in the US. And this idea by the Abrahamic religions mostly, that women's sexuality needs to be controlled for whatever reason. And I, and I guess, you know, whittle down to it. Our wombs are basically the vectors of the future. And especially in patriarchal cultures, and, and most of the world is patriarchy right now because, you know, fathers pass on their names to, to their children and inheritance goes through the, the, the patrilineal line. The need to control women's sexuality, you know, connects directly to things like land ownership and, and money and, and finance. So, I mean, you can explain it that way. But what, what I do in the Middle East, uh, when it comes to the Middle East and North Africa is I say it's a toxic mix of religion and culture. And for me, specifically in those Arabic speaking countries of the region, it's Islam and Christianity, not just Islam. And so in Egypt, for example, Muslim and Christian families subject their daughters to female genital mutilation as a way of controlling women's sexuality. In Lebanon, um, I mentioned uh, an attempt, a successful attempt, actually, by the leaders of the Christian communities there and the Muslim communities, because Lebanon is a very diverse country of many ethnicities and sectarian backgrounds. Those Christian and Muslim leaders managed to remove language from an anti-domestic violence bill that would have protected women against marital rape. It would have made marital rape a crime. Not only did they remove that, but they included language that basically gave Christian and Muslim men the right to sex on demand from their wives. So this toxic mix of religion and culture plays out on women's bodies, basically. I want to talk a little bit about your experiences. Your Egyptian parents moved to the UK to earn their PhDs in medicine. They accepted jobs in Jeddah. Although your mom was teaching clinical microbiology at a university, the law in Saudi Arabia placed huge restrictions even on her ability to get to work by herself. Yeah, see, you know, the interesting thing for me was, I mean, there were things that I learned in all these different places that, that we lived in. And I consider myself very lucky, I guess, although sometimes the learning was difficult. When we moved to London, I mean, my brother and I joined my parents in London in 1975. I come from a, a very regular middle class background and the, my parents met at medical school. And, you know, when I think about it now, I mean, I really did grow up in a feminist home because my parents met as equals in medical school, got their master's degree together and then got a government grant to go to London to get their PhDs. And I remember the fact that my, my, both my parents were the reason that we were in London was a, a, something that surprised my teachers in the UK greatly. And I, I look back now and I think this is 1975. That's like the height of second wave feminism. And it, it taught me at the time that very little is expected of Muslim women because he was my mother, you know, getting a PhD. And for our last year in the UK, we lived in Glasgow and my father was unable to get a, to find a job. So he was a house husband who would come pick us up from school, have dinner ready for my mother when she came home because she was the breadwinner. And then we moved to Saudi Arabia and everything just turns upside down. And, and I mentioned that background in the UK because my parents raised my siblings and I up with the idea that knowledge was the most important thing. And then we moved to Saudi Arabia and I see these two very educated parents who brought us up as equals and brought us up as Muslims. And we moved to a Muslim-majority country where it's a very different type of Islam that's, that's been practiced because all of a sudden my mother can't drive anywhere. I can't go anywhere unaccompanied. And we become totally dependent on my father. And education is segregated from first grade all the way to the end of university. So and my mother would often describe those years as feeling that she'd had her legs cut off because she couldn't drive anymore. So he was this, you know, very, very independent, very educated woman who, as I said, supported us for that last year in the UK, becoming totally dependent on her husband in Saudi Arabia because of this toxic mix of religion and culture, very different to the religion that I was brought up with. What played into your decision in your mid-teens to start wearing the hijab? 
Well, very soon after we moved to Saudi Arabia, I felt really suffocated by by the ultra-conservatism um, religion. This very, very rigid religion was everywhere I turned. And then we, and three weeks after we arrived, we went on Hajj, the Muslim pilgrimage, which is the fifth pillar of Islam. And it was the first time in my life that I was basically covered from head to toe with just my face and my hands showing. I looked like a nun. And I, I went to Catholic school in Glasgow for the last year, so the nun connection was very relevant. And during Hajj, I was groped twice, once by someone who was with me, a regular uh, pilgrim, and by a Saudi policeman, which horrified me at the time. And it took me years to actually be able to talk about it because, you know, this is like the holiest place for Muslims. And I felt so ashamed. I'd done nothing to be ashamed of, but the fact that it happened there just blew my mind. And so very soon after, I wanted to, to hide basically behind my veil, my headscarf, because I wanted to hide from the eyes and hands of men. And I often compare that story to a story that one of my American friends told me when she was a very similar age and she moved, she went to Italy with her family when she was 15 and was constantly molested and groped. And when she moved back to the US, started wearing very baggy clothes and and as an attempt to hide. And you know that age 15, 16 Mm -hmm. for girls is really difficult wherever you are. Things are developing and you have no control over them and you just want to, I just wanted to hide. So I chose to hide behind my headscarf. But, you know, obviously, as we know, with with sexual harassment and molestation, it has nothing to do with what you're wearing. And I discovered that because I wore my headscarf for nine years. And, you know, I say I I chose to wear my headscarf and I chose to take it off nine years later, but it took me eight years to take it off. And and I I share that story because I think this word choice when it comes to covering up is is a difficult one to square off because it was much easier to take it off. I mean, to, to wear it than to take it off. We are speaking with writer and commentator Mona Altahawi. Her new book is called Headscarves and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution. She's in town to speak tonight to the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. You can join our conversation at 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org or find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for THINK comes from the SMU Master of Liberal Studies program. You can apply now for fall and design your own master's degree at SMU, a customizable evening master's degree for working professionals. More at smu.edu slash MLS. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with writer and commentator Mona Eltahawi. Her new book is called Headscarves and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution. She's in town to speak tonight to the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. You can join us at 1-800-933-5372 or email think at kera.org. Mona, before the break, you said it was easier to put on the headscarf than to take it off. Explain that. Right, because, you know, for years I struggled with the headscarf. It took me eight years to take it off. And and uh, when I became a feminist at the age of 19 in Saudi Arabia, you know, as you mentioned earlier, Chris, uh, I explained my headscarf by saying, you know, this is a feminist choice. I can choose to wear a miniskirt. I can choose to cover whatever parts of my body I want. You have to accept that. And I would also say things like, you know, I want you to focus on my intellect. I don't want you to be distracted by anything else. And then 
but I, I very quickly realized soon after I began to wear the headscarf that it re- it wasn't me. I didn't recognize myself in the mirror. I missed the wind in my hair, which, you know, and this feeling of missing the wind in your hair, there's recently been a social media campaign by Iranian women who are breaking the ban there on their enforced veiling by putting pictures of themselves up on, on social media without their veil. And many of them say, I miss the wind in my hair. This is a real thing. Hmm. And so I missed all of that, but it was so difficult to take it off because I was taught, you know, through school, through religious practice, that it's much worse to wear it and take it off than never to wear it at all because you're considered to kind of like, you know, have found the light and, you know, you're following the religious teachings because when I first began to wear it, I thought it was a religious requirement. But then through my, my, my reading in the feminist text that I discovered at Ironically, my university <laughs> uh, bookshelves you in still Saudi don't know Arabia. who put them there. I don't know. You know, some like, you know, night, nightingale of feminism. <laughs> I, I don't know. But, you know, bless her. Because those books really gave me the words for what I was struggling with. And so I, I moved away from that thinking. I moved away from this thinking that it was a religious requirement because I've, I've read so many um, Muslim feminist scholars who say it's not. I've moved away from the thinking that, you know, this is the way for you to respect my intellect because my thinking became and it continues to be breasts, hips, everything, you must still respect my intellect. I will not change my body so that you respect my intellect. But it took me eight years to take it off. So now when I talk about this idea of choice and I'm asked, well, can't you respect that these women have chosen to dress like this? Or ultra-Orthodox Jewish women have chosen to dress like this? Or or nuns or whoever? I say, you know, this word choice, for me, I recognize that it's much easier to do this than to take it off. So for me, I'm not really sure how much of a choice it is. And also as a feminist, I, I see now modesty culture and purity culture as things that unfairly burden girls and women specifically. I don't see men and boys being held to modesty. And so if it's something that just unfairly burdens girls and women, I do not consider it feminist. I have interviewed journalists who are not Muslim but have um, gone to places where it's customary to wear very modest dress and and to cover their hair, and they've done that just to be respectful of the general culture or to to get by, who said that when they come back to the West to visit family, they feel a little naked walking around in, you know, a skirt or shorts. Um, Did you have some of that, even though you made a conscious choice that you didn't feel like it was necessary and that you felt like it was repressive to have uh, covered yourself all those years, what, what did it feel? like the when you first started walking around after nine years um, in clothing that was not modest according to the standards of the people around you? You know, it was really difficult. And, and I took it off in, I think it was 92 or 93, at a time when Egypt was very different. I mean, I mentioned in my book that 30, 40 years ago, before we moved to the UK, none of my female relatives veiled in, in any shape or form. And now 90% of Egyptian women wear some form of veil. So you can see how the pendulum really swung to the right. But back in 1992, 93, it wasn't that majority. And so when I took it off, it it was really difficult. It was also... I went, I mentioned an anecdote in my book where I went to a hairdresser, a bad hairdresser, so they could give me a bad haircut because I felt so guilty. And I didn't want anyone to think that I was doing it so I could look hot and, you know, and attract guys because that really wasn't my my goal. And I, I basically kept the wardrobe as it was, but just my hair uncovered. And there would be so many times where I'd be sitting there somewhere and i go, oh my God, I forgot to wear my headscarf. It took years to kind of get over that. And I actually wouldn't tell new friends that I used to wear a headscarf because I, I hadn't squared it squared it off with myself but i think now in egypt we're going to we're going to hear more and more narratives like the one i shared about what it's like to unveil because i see that the pendulum begin to swing back and and i say this because over the past 2 years alone in egypt i know in my own personal circle at least 10 women 
who've taken off various forms of veils, one of them after 30 years. And I, I can't begin to imagine after 30 years. So I think in, in the telling of these personal narratives, we not only realize that we're not alone and, and this guilt and this burden doesn't have to be carried by just ourselves. It's also a way of, of letting others know, because I hear from younger women who write to me and say, how did you do it? Because I'm really struggling now. That, you know, it's it's possible if this is what you want. And for me, the most interesting aspect of it is that a lot of women are connecting it directly to the revolution because they're asking, how can I liberate my country unless I liberate myself first? And for them, I'm not saying it's for every woman, but for them, taking off the veil is a form of liberty. Um, I hope that you won't bristle at the question, but I wonder how important it is to you to find male allies who agree with those choices. I'm really glad that you prefaced it with that. I, I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Because, you know, a lot of people, they just take it for granted that I should have mentioned men more and that I should have focused on men more. And actually, I, I really do bristle when, when people suggest that because the whole point of my book is that we have to focus on girls and women. The whole point of my book is that that trifecta of state, street and home has so made everything male and male entitled that even in the space of my book, people are demanding where are the men? And, and you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a big believer in revolution. I'm a big believer in provoking and making people uncomfortable. And also a big believer that men will not give us this freedom. We will demand it. And until the men of the region feel that we are taking this freedom, nothing will change. Having said all of that, I, I do see men have begun to change. And one anecdote that I love to share is that just before I left for my book tour, I got an invitation to speak at a TEDx in one of a very conservative town northeast of Cairo called Zagazig. And this town is the birthplace of Mohammed Morsi, who was the president from the Muslim Brotherhood, who I think very unjustly was sentenced to, to death a few days ago. And I don't support the Muslim Brotherhood, but I also don't support the death penalty. And the Egyptian criminal justice system is very, very... Um, unjust. Anyway, I was invited by a group of students to speak at their TEDx and, and the, the head of the organizing committee was a 19, 20-year-old pharmacy student, a man. And he, in his invitation to me, he said, Dear Mona, please come and speak because our community needs a feminist like you to shake it up. This is a 19, 20-year-old man, you know, and, and speaking with the students there afterwards just it really gave me hope because this is a very conservative town. They know what they're up against. And they, like several other men from the region who write, who write to me before and now since my book came out, they're saying, I don't want to be that man. I don't want to be the man associated with patriarchy. I don't want to be the man associated with street sexual harassment. And I think ultimately what they're recognizing is that in the way that feminism says that femininity is a social construct that burdens women and we can unpack it, feminism also says that masculinity and very, very rigid notions of what it is to be a real man or manhood is also a social construct that can burden you. So I think they recognize that as Bell Hooks, the black feminist says, feminism is good for everybody. You have a great story in the book about a married couple that you met that made a real statement um, on the day of their marriage. Yes, this was a couple from Ethiopia, and they give me great hope in the fight against female genital mutilation. I met them in New York through the group um, Equality Now, I think it was, because Equality Now does a lot of great work against female genital mutilation. And Ethiopia, like Egypt, sadly, has very high rates of genital cutting. And this um, this couple, on their wedding, they had a, a public wedding at which the young woman wore a sign saying, I'm happy to not have been cut. And her husband, her bridegroom, wore a sign saying, I'm happy to marry an uncut woman. 
And I think that in and of itself is a revolution because as I mentioned earlier, when I'm asked why do mothers do this to their daughters, recognizing and remembering the pain of their own genital cutting, the reason they do that is because they want their daughters to be able to get married. And this is a requirement of that trifecta, state, street and home. So to see a couple do that, to see a man say, I'm happy to marry an uncut woman, to see a woman speaking openly about her own experience and saying, I refuse to have this done, is so important. And and they were helped by a women's health center. And when I'm asked how... How do you propose the social sexual revolution take place? I point to couples like them. I point to the feminist health center that helped them to break out of this very harmful tradition. And I point to Egyptian feminists, veteran feminists like Nawal Saadawi, who was one of the earliest feminists I've ever read speaking about her own experience. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go on the phone now to Robert in Fort Worth. Hi, Robert. Hi, how's it going? Very well, thanks. Yes, thanks for taking my, my question. I, I'm curious about why uh, your guests would continue to practice as a Muslim and why people who claim to be moderate Muslims don't abandon the religion altogether since it's basically the founding of it by a man who abused women and he's supposed to be the guiding light that all Muslims model themselves after, you know, uh, isn't Islam doomed from the outset? Isn't it something that should be abandoned because, well... A 54-year-old man having sexual relations with a nine-year-old girl, that's that's the basis of this religion. Okay, I suggest that you buy my book, <laughs> not just because I want everyone to read my book, but there are a lot of things that you need to learn. And I take great offense at the fact that you say that the founder of Islam is a man who abused women. I mention uh, a very important fact that you should know in my book, and that is Muhammad's first wife was a woman called Khadija, who was 15 years older than him. She employed him. She was a very rich and powerful businesswoman who had been married two or three times before, divorced and widowed. And she proposed to Muhammad. He was 25 and she was 40, and she was his only wife until she died. And she was the first Muslim. And when I'm asked, first of all, I, I also take great offense at the question, why haven't you abandoned your faith? Because... To ask a feminist to do something that you think is right for her is incredibly offensive. And I think in current parlance now, that's called mansplaining, to think that you as a man can tell me what I should do with my wife, with my life. And talking of wives, so Muhammad's first wife was 15 years older than him. You're you're referring to Aisha, who was one of his several other wives after Khadija died. I don't know how old Aisha was. I don't really care how old Aisha was. There was a time in history when adult men married children. I really don't care about that time in history, and I'm glad that time in history is over, and it should be over in every country, which is why in my book I go to great lengths to talk about the need to have a minimum age for marriage, regardless of how old Aisha was. Some people say six, some say nine, some say 19. In today's world, having sex with children is a crime and must be a crime everywhere. But the reason that I mention Khadija and you focus on Aisha, is because you, like our conservative and misogynist clerics, obsess over this so-called child bride. So for me, it's really interesting that the right wing of my community, these misogynist clerics, and the right wing Islamophobes, who I think you belong to, you constantly focus on this child 
And none of you speak about this much older woman who was the first Muslim and who is my role model. So again, I'm not obliged to answer your question, why should I, cha- why I, why I should stay in my religion? Because it's quite honestly none of your business. But I do stay in my religion because the first person to become a Muslim was this incredibly powerful woman, Khadija, who believed in Muhammad. And there is no instance in which he is seen to have abused anyone. If anything, that message that he came with and the fact that it was accepted by this rich, powerful woman says to me that this is a religion that I want to stay in and fight for. Because regardless of the Islamophobes and the right wing clerics, this religion is mine, not yours. There are, um, we, we certainly in the West have seen a lot of examples of people um, arguing um, in sometimes constructive ways, sometimes not constructive ways about the right way to be a Muslim in the same way that people argue about the right way to be a Jew or a Hindu or a Christian. Do you think there's something, though, about the way the West perceives Islam that, that causes many people to assume that this is a monolithic expression of religious faith? I, yeah, I think, you know, there, there are like several ways to answer that question. I think the first would be just kind of what kind of images are often portrayed of Muslims in Western media, for example. And I like to kind of dilute them into these stock characters that I carry around with me. And it's angry bearded Muslim men. And you always see these angry bearded Muslim men, you know, in protests, burning flags, American Israeli flags. And they look so angry that they almost look like they're going to reach out from your TV screen when you're watching the nightly news and kind of grab you by the throat. And for women, it's it's covered in black silent Muslim woman, because you never hear from Muslim women. They're always in the background somewhere if they appear at all. And so that's one way that you see Muslims being portrayed. The, the other way is as very devout, like two flavors of, of Muslim, very devout, observant Muslim. And that's why I'm constantly asked, so, so do you pray? Do you fast? Questions that are incredibly intrusive and are nobody's business. And so that's one flavor of Muslim. And then the only other flavor allowed is, you know, the ISIS Daesh crowd. So you're either a very, very observant Muslim or you're ready to go out there and behead people. And the fact of the matter is Muslims, like everybody else, are human and complicated. And, you know, people come in in all different forms and shapes. And I know Muslims who are very, very observant and then do very non-observant things. I know Muslim, there are some Muslim women, for example, in the United States who, and this for me is such a refreshing trend, they will wear a headscarf for two or three days and then will, won't wear it for a week and then will wear it again. So to see that complication, to see that complexity is necessary. And I, and I don't think we're ever given that complexity. And it's one of the reasons that when I moved to the U.S., I stopped doing news reporting because, I mean, I, I've given up on objectivity. 9-11 basically ruined objectivity for me because as a Muslim, this, this, it was horrific. There were, there were Muslims murdered on that day, along with people of all different backgrounds and faiths. And clearly what happened then did not represent me as a Muslim, but I didn't see anyone else on TV representing me as a Muslim, you know, as a feminist, as I describe myself as a progressive liberal Muslim. So I, I think we need to complicate the image of Muslims. I need We need to stop just asking, um, so they pray five times a day and they fast because it's Ramadan now. Muslims are much more interesting and human than that. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go to Devin in Arlington. Hi, Devin. Hi. Um, I was actually curious about um, the image that you do try to portray, Mona, on uh, social media. Um, I went to your Twitter account and actually saw a lot of the retweets that you posted, some as recently as an hour ago, that seemed, you know, kind of racially divisive and abrasive in their context. You're referring to the retweets of a professor at, at Penn 
the University of Pennsylvania called Anthea Butler, who is a, a, a good friend and a great hero of mine because she's, one for me, one of the best examples of an academic. She's a scholar of religion and she's very connected to what is happening on the ground in the United States today. And her, the tweets that you're referring to are regarding the Charleston uh, shooting, yes, the massacre yesterday in the church in South Carolina. And I absolutely stand by what Anthea wrote. And what Anthea wrote, basically, to summarize all those retweets that you're referring to, is that this country, the United States, has not owned up to its racist history. And until it does, massacres like we saw yesterday will continue, white supremacy will continue, and police brutality against black people, men and women, will continue. I don't think that's racially divisive. I think that's honest. We're speaking this hour with writer and commentator Mona Eltahawi. Her new book is called Headscarves and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution. She's in town to speak tonight to the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. That's at 6.30. If you'd like to be part of our conversation, you can call 1-800-933-5372. You can email think at kera.org or find me on Twitter at Chris Boyd Think. Funding for THINK comes from the SMU Master of Liberal Studies program. You can apply now for fall and design your own master's degree at SMU, specializing in communications or organizational dynamics. More at smu.edu slash mls. You're listening to Think on KERA 90.1. I'm Chris Boyd. We're speaking this hour with the writer of a new book called Headscarves and Hymens, Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution. Mona Eltahawi will speak tonight to the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. If you'd like to join our conversation, you can call 1-800-933-5372. Mona, certainly many other cultures, including American culture, could fairly have been deemed quite misogynistic at different points in history. Why do you think that in certain parts of the world, attitudes about women, although they haven't evolved to perfection, have certainly evolved to a greater extent than in the Middle East, the part of the world that you're referring to and writing about in this book? I think it has to do with a sustained feminist movement that has an impact on that trifecta, the state, the street, and the home, as I mentioned. And at a lot of the events that I speak at for regarding my book, I like to remind people of kind of the various challenges that women face across the world because I think it's really important to connect it to global feminism. So in China, for example, where I'm just learning about a modern kind of feminist movement in the run-up to the International Women's Day this year, March 8th, 10 feminist activists were arrested because they had planned street guerrilla theater events regarding feminism and domestic violence, and five of them were detained for a month. They were called the Feminist Five. And then in India, you know, after the Delhi gang rape, we began to hear, although, of course, Indian women had been fighting against sexual violence for years, about Indian feminists and what they're doing. And in Turkey and Afghanistan recently, we saw Muslim women who refused to abide by conservative Muslim tradition that said women can't bury a corpse, but it's the men's job to do it because the, the women were insistent because it was a victim of violence in both those countries. And I like to connect all of that to black women in this country who launched the three queer black women who launched the Black Lives Matter movement after Trayvon uh, Martin was murdered. And, and I make those connections because I think it's really important that for in a lot of cultures, including my own, and 
basically kind of a, as a rough way to describe them, were women of color. Women of color have, have been under a great burden of silence because we've been told that if you speak out against the misogyny in your community, you're going to encourage racist. And we had an example of a racist Islamophobe earlier. And, and you're going to make your men look bad. And so the burden has been on us to be silent about that internal sexism. But the, the reason I, I find great courage and inspiration through those various movements that I just described, and specifically through black feminism, which is why I mention uh, Bell Hooks and, and the black lesbian poet Audre Lorde, and then the Chicana lesbian political thinker Gloria Anzaldúa, all of whom I quote in my book, is that for me, they, they represent the best way to fight this this consistent fight that we need to, to push ourselves along that spectrum of misogyny. And that is the fight that recognizes that we're fighting racism and sexism at the same time. And that I will criticize and call out the misogyny in my own community and outside of my community at the same time as I tell the racists, the, the xenophobes and the Islamophobes that I will never ally with you and you do not offer any kind of aid to me and you will not use my words against the men of my own community. It's a, it's a very difficult kind of like triple-headed fight, but it's the necessary fight that we need to have. And I think what we're seeing happening in the region, the Arabic-speaking parts of, of the region now, is that there are younger people who have seen a revolution and have seen leaders who are forced to step down. And I think that in and of itself is the beginning of what I call the revolution of the mind. Because just as we remove the Mubarak from the presidential palace, we need, we need to say, I say in my book, we need to remove him from the street corner and from the home. And for women, it's that, that double fight of the racism and the sexism or the fight against the conservative clerics and the right-wing xenophobes as well as the sexists wherever they are. What's the solution to an issue like forced child marriage in a place like Yemen, where at least in part it is seen as the answer to families living in poverty and unable to support all their children? And so there's this cultural institution that allows them to marry off a very young daughter, but at least feel like she's going to be fed and clothed. Right. You know, it was the International Day of the Child a couple of days ago, and I often tweet about various African issues too because I, in, in Egypt, I mean I, Egypt is an African country obviously but I also very much identify with African issues specifically what African feminists are doing because I think that the continental feminist movement is very important because we can learn from each other. Yemen obviously isn't in Africa but it is part of the region that I covered but I mention um, Africa and the International Day of the Child because I, I learned a statistic that is useful in, in discussing this and that is 40% of African women are married before the age of 18. Again, also having to do with, with poverty and, and the tradition that thinks that she's better off being married because it, it because children can be a financial burden on families. Now, obviously, the rights of the girl child must never be sacrificed, you know, in return for anything. And I think then we have to look at the, those communities holistically and ask what can we do in order not to throw girls under the bus, so to speak. And, and I connect this a lot to female genital mutilation because that, too, is a harmful tradition that will not be ended if we just focus on girls and women without looking at the, the atmosphere around them, kind of the holistic struggle that is needed in order to stop that harmful tradition being carried on by mothers on their daughters. So I think in a country like Yemen, they, they need a minimum age of marriage and, and they have activists. Their, their current Minister for Human Rights Issues is a woman who has long said it is one of her priorities to, to have this law put in place to put a, a minimum age of marriage. But you look at what's 
happening in Yemen now. And this reminds you of the trifecta and the geopolitics. Yemen has been bombed now by Saudi Arabia for more than a month. Yemen is the poorest country in the region. Saudi Arabia is one of the richest countries in the region. And so whenever we talk about the need to, to fight women's issues and girls' issues, they're, they're always put on the back burner because of other things happening. So now, obviously, what's happening politically in Yemen is there's a war and, and a very poor country is being rendered even poorer because of the Saudi bombardment of Yemen. So I think that what the activists there are doing is is absolutely spot on. They are talking about not throwing girls under the bus for the sake of um, helping a family that is poor or tradition or anything. But I also think that we need to, to look at it in the context of what's happening. And, and as well as fighting it with laws, we also need to tell the countries around Yemen pay up the aid that you promised. Saudi Arabia promised Yemen hundreds of millions of dollars in aid, but continues bombing it instead. So I think that that many people are are to blame here. But I hope that the human rights minister is is true to her word and that she manages to shut down the conservative and misogynist clerics who use that toxic mix of religion and culture as a very shameful shield to hide behind. What's the situation with regard to women's access to birth control and family planning services in this part of the world? For married women in most parts of the countries um, in the region that I write about, it, it's easy to access uh, contraception. And and that's actually really interesting because, you know, again, when I compare modesty and purity culture and I compare, um, say, what's been happening here in the United States because of the Christian right and uh, lessons in abstinence and making it very difficult for people to get access to contraception, it's often a surprise to people to hear that it's much easier to get contraception in the Middle East and North Africa than it is in some parts of the United States. It's also much easier to get an abortion in many parts of the Middle East and North Africa than in many parts of the the southern United States anyway. But what concerns me um, alongside that is that I believe that contraception should be made available to non-married people too, because I think that one of the things we need to be honest about in my part of the world is sex and who is having sex. And Islam is a very sex positive religion when it comes to sex between husbands and wives, which I think is a great thing. Unlike Christianity and Judaism, it's not about having sex so that you can recreate, so that you can procreate rather, so that you can have children. Islam teaches men and women that it's a blessing to have sex, regardless of whether you want, you're having sex to have children or not. So I think that's a really important thing. And there, there are um, verses in the Quran and sayings by Muhammad that encourage men to to um, practice foreplay with their wives and, and to enjoy sex as a couple. For me, I would like to e- extend that sex positivity to unmarried people as well, because A, I think it would be an honest acknowledgement of what's happening. And when when sex happens quietly and in silence, the people who are hurt the most, as we know here in parts of the United States that practice abstinence-only teaching, the people who are weakest in those cultures are the, the most hurt, and that is girls and women. So I would like to see contraception available to anyone who wants it, and I would like a much more honest approach to sex where consenting adults can have sex with whomever they like as, as long as they're consenting adults. And that I see as part of, of that sexual revolution, and obviously it's something I would like to extend to the U.S., to Israel, to wherever, because I talk about the Abrahamic religions, and I recognize how all three of of them often have trouble with sex. 1-800-933-5372 is our telephone number. Let's go now to Daniel in Dallas. Hi, Daniel. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. And uh, Ramadan Mubrak. Thank um, you. Leela Ahmed, in her book, Women and Gender in Islam, discusses a phenomenon in which um, early British imperialists um, highlighted the veiling of women 
as a kind of colonial discourse in the way that even going into today, um, many Western um, advocates for like women's liberation in the Middle East are often like the most hostile towards uh, women, towards feminist movements in their own societies. And I was wondering, as uh, a Westerner who's interested in the Middle East and is a very ardently pro-feminist, um, how do you negotiate and how do you recommend Westerners negotiate that kind of relationship between colonialism, neocolonialism, imperialism, and the veiling of women in, uh, in Islam? Right. Well, first of all, thank you for your Ramadan greeting. I appreciate it. And also thank you for your very thoughtful question. It's very refreshing. Um, you're absolutely right. Leila Ahmed does remind, and, and I ex- expand on it in my book, that um, the the man you, you're talking about is Lord Cromer, who was the British High Commissioner in Egypt when uh, the when Britain occupied Egypt, and he was a known anti uh, he was he was against women's right to vote in in the United Kingdom at the same time as he was promoting feminism in Egypt. So as at the time when suffragists were chaining themselves to the fences of the House of Parliament in England, Lord Cromer opposed their feminist fight, but yet he was a great promoter, so to speak, of feminism in Egypt, which highlights this very, very awful and imperialist approach to women's rights. This was the same approach that was taken when the United States invaded Afghanistan and we heard Laura Bush go on the radio and say, we're going to help women get rid of their burqas. And clearly that was not the reason that this country invaded Afghanistan. So when when it comes to the West and women's rights in, in the Middle East and North Africa and actually globally, it is a very, very troubling um, approach to women's rights. And you're absolutely right. It, it can be a minefield to walk into. That's why I think it's really important to listen to voices from the region, like Layla Ahmed, which is why I'm glad you read her book, and I hope you'll read mine. Because I think when it comes to veiling especially, because it is such a visible symbol, it's it's often the first and only thing people will focus on. And they will forget things like ultra-Orthodox Jewish women veil. They will forget things like purity culture in you know among Christ- Christians in the United States. And for me, the best way to approach it is to listen to those voices, hear the, the very, very often lively and at times difficult discussions that we as Muslim women have, because we're not monolithic, in which we can disagree, and of course we disagree, about the various forms of veiling. Listen to stories like mine about my own struggle, but there are others, you know, like my mother, who has a PhD in medicine, who wears a hijab, and as so does my sister. Now, we disagree with each other, obviously, because I took off mine, and I don't consider it feminist anymore. So I think that the best way to kind of to honor that feminism and, and make it global is to amplify voices of the women from that culture and that faith, and to hear their disagreements and to recognize their their diversity and to say that they are not monolithic. I think that's the best way you help us. What advice do you have for women in places like Saudi Arabia and Egypt and Iran who would like to stand up against their own oppression but worry not only about legal sanctions and consequences that might happen to them, but, but about social isolation from their sisters, from their mothers, from their aunts and their grandmothers and their neighbors and people that they love very much mm-hmm. but who might view their choice as um, really a line that can't be crossed twice? It's very difficult to break out of the obedience and conformity that conservatism anywhere imposes on you, especially in in that part of the world where I come from, where, you know, family is very important. The the family you come from, you know, in most parts of the region, actually in all of them, women and men live at home until they get married. So it's a very, very close knit part of the world. 
and and that 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 can be positive and negative because you know your families will help you if you're financially struggling if you're unemployed babysitting you know all kinds of of comfort and support but at the same time that can often come with this kind of at times suffocating very very uh, need to conform kind of attitude so it can be very difficult and and I know because I I've shared some of my own personal experience of of pushing past those lines I think my the, the best advice I can give people is that in the areas where you can most push push because consider the ability to push a privilege and so in my in my example or in my case for example I consider the fact that in Egypt now I am able to live alone and 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 I have a voice and people know who I am I consider that an incredible privilege and I think that privilege comes with responsibility and obligation and I think that responsibility and obligation means that I must push 10 times harder than someone who doesn't because I remember what I was what it was like when I was a 19 year old and I felt totally disempowered I didn't have the power to take off my headscarf I fought for 8 years but I I gained some of that power through women who did push and those were the muslim feminist authors I discovered in the library I stood on their shoulders so what I'm hoping to do now is give my shoulders for those other women who want to push and say stand on my shoulders Mona Altahawi's new book is called Headscarves and Hymens Why the Middle East Needs a Sexual Revolution tonight at 6:30 she will speak to the World Affairs Council of Dallas Fort Worth Mona thank you so much for coming in today thank you for having me Think is produced by Stephen Becker and engineered by Shelley Canavy. Lindsay Connect is associate producer with help on the phones today from Gus Contreras. Our executive producer is Jeff Whittington. The show's email address is think at kera.org. Once again, I'm Chris Boyd. Thanks for listening and have a great day.